0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham. Um, I am going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, Last week, we talked about the coronavirus, and I said that we were going to uh, get back into our series on deconversion, and I I promise you we will do that. But um, I recorded an interview with uh, Dr. Charles Kennedy, who is an infectious disease uh, physician here in Lexington, Kentucky, and also happens to be an elder in our church. And um, originally I, I recorded that just to send out to our church as a resource, but um, the content was so good and he was so helpful and had such a good perspective that I made the decision to uh, post that as this week's episode um, because I know the podcast has a further-reaching audience than just our internal church communications, so um, we 're going to take another break this week, and I, I think everybody understands why this is on everybody 's minds and weighing on everybody 's heart so we 're going to take another break uh, this week to um, listen to this interview, which I think you 're going to find uh, very very informative the The helpful thing is that charlie is he really is a leading Um, He wouldn't tell you this, but he really is a leading physician in this field, and um, he's really an expert. And so it was an opportunity for uh, someone who has no idea what they're talking about, like myself and the general public, who's just consuming mass news and information and misinformation, to sit down with somebody that actually knows what they're talking about and ask the questions that – Normal people like us want to ask. So I think you'll find it very informative. And then make sure to stay through all the way to the end because I do ask him um, to take off his physician hat and put on his um, elder uh, Christian hat and um, give a word. And he he gives a very encouraging word to Christians. So, anyway, with that, um, hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Charles Kennedy. Okay, so we are going to take some time here to um, dialogue with uh, Charlie, I call you Charlie, Dr. Charles Kennedy, the one and only. Um, I thought it would be good since um, we have uh, Charlie as an elder at our church, and I'll let him share his uh his qualifications, of title here in a second, but he he's leading a lot of the efforts here in our city, um, having to do the coronavirus. So I thought it'd be good um, resource to take some time and dialogue with him. We're together appropriately socially distant, um, and and so I'm just going to ask him some questions that um, a lot of people are wondering. I'm wondering, and hope that it'll be a resource to us. Uh, so, uh, Charlie. First, what, what tell us your position and kind of what your involvement is right now.
1: Um, I'm an MD, basically, with board certification in internal medicine and infectious diseases. I'm one of 11 physicians that make up Lexington Infectious Disease Consultants that are active in five hospitals here in town, basically. And uh, also have um, uh, voluntary faculty appointments at UK and are involved in medical education throughout the town.
0: Okay. So... Before we get into it, how are you and your other physicians and is it as crazy as we're hearing on the news? Are you all overwhelmed? Uh, I think the answer to that
1: is is yes. Um, and I'm 62 and I've been doing this for the last 36 years. And uh, I was a young doctor in the early 1980s basically when this HIV AIDS thing came around. and over the last uh, number of decades, basically, we've been through SARS and MERS and H1N1 influenza and Ebola and Zika. Uh, but the COVID-19 thing is something that's impacted the world and certainly the United States at a much more profound level than anything that I've ever seen before.
0: So you've never seen anything like this? Not even close. Okay. So it is a big deal. It's not just media hype. So let's start with the basics. What, what is this? What are we dealing with?
1: COVID-19 is the name that's been given to the clinical syndrome that's associated with a viral infection by an organism that's called SARS-CoV-2 and it's called SARS-CoV-2 because there was previously an an epidemic due to SARS-CoV-1 approximately 12 years ago. There were about 2,500 cases that arose in Southeast Asia with approximately 800 deaths but there wasn't widespread distribution of that infection in southeast asia western europe and the united states
0: okay so it seems to me that people like myself who don't know what they're talking about are talking about coronavirus and smart people like you are calling it covid-19 what's the difference between coronavirus and covid-19
1: coronavirus is basically historically were thought to cause relatively mild upper respiratory infections and to be the most common cause of summer colds. And so there are four common strains of coronavirus that circulate in the community, but in general don't cause severe disease. The current strain uh, of coronavirus is specifically called SARS-CoV-2. And it is that organism basically that arose in Wuhan, which is the capital city of the Hubei province, basically in China. And the origins of the infection were thought to be related to what we call a transgenic spread. And many individuals what's a transgenic, spread? transgenic spread occurs when a viral organism arises in the animal kingdom and then essentially jumps to the human species.
0: Okay. All right. So that's what's unique about this or are all of these. No, other...
1: all all of the coronaviruses have their origin basically in some zoonotic host and what's not widely appreciated is that all of the influenza viruses typically have their start uh, in the avian world, basically. They, st- they start in birds.
0: Oh, birds.
1: Okay. And, uh, and then when those basically jump species from an animal reservoir, basically, to hum- humans, that's the, that's the definition of a transgenic spread.
0: Okay. So what's unique about this one? Why is this one so dangerous?
1: Because of its infectivity, basically, and the ease with which it's transmitted from person to person.
0: And again, this is a guy who reads, reads the Internet so doesn't know what he's talking about. Is it, this, is it the fact that it's novel, that, 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 it's, that it's new and our bodies have never seen anything like this that makes it so infectious and dangerous?
1: This is a new genetic strain of coronaviruses, and we've known about coronaviruses since the early 1960s. But we've never encountered a strain that, this was, that was this transmissible and this virulent in terms of the ability to cause both severe disease and death.
0: And, and so, to be clear, I mean, we, we, we see that it is causing death. What does what the virus do to you? It, it's a respiratory thing that...
1: The, the primary event, basically, with coronaviruses is, is that they enter uh, the upper airways from aerosol droplets or the nasal passages. And in approximately 80% of patients, those infections are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, not severe enough in general to cause a patient, basically, to seek medical attention. But in a smaller percentage of patients, 15 to 20% can be associated with fever, a non-productive cough, and the evolution of respiratory failure. And a significant number of those patients require mechanical ventilation. Uh, and the mortality is currently cited largely from the Chinese experience. somewhere between 35 and
0: 4%. But we're not seeing those levels here, or is that pretty consistent? No.
1: As of today, on, on Johns Hopkins' website, basically, there have been 60,000 confirmed cases in the United States with 810 deaths. So the mortality in the United States is currently at about 1.2%, which is lower than in the uh, than in the Chinese experience. So
0: by comparison, what would be the mortality rate of like a seasonal flu?
1: The mortality rate for seasonal influenza, which uh, causes about 32,000 deaths every year in this country, is about 0.1%. So it, it looks as though the mortality, even in the United States, with advanced healthcare delivery systems, is fully tenfold higher than seasonal influenza.
0: So ten times more dangerous and much more contagious. Is that a good word? Yes, uh,
1: much more uh, much more easily transmitted from patient to patient. And the danger uh, in, in the SARS-CoV-2 uh, situation um, is that amongst that 80% of individuals who have either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infections, those individuals are at the highest risk, basically, of passing the virus unknowingly. Uh, to members of the society that are actually vulnerable.
0: And that, yeah, that I, that was one thing you told me when we were thinking and praying through what we need to do here. You you, you said, and I, I want to make sure I can get this quote right, you're saying the most dangerous part of this is the people in our society walking around who are asymptomatic, carrying the virus, and spreading it everywhere.
1: That's correct, actually. And there was a, there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine actually last week that tried to quantitate the amount of viral shedding. And the two groups that were compared, basically, was a group that was known to be infected on the basis of DNA testing, but had no symptoms, and then compared to a group that was known to be infected, but critically ill and mechanically ventilated. And the frightening thing was is that the viral burden in terms of shedding was as high or higher in the symptomatic group, or excuse me, in the asymptomatic group as it was in the individuals who were critically ill.
0: Okay, let me, let me say that in a way that I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you're saying that the asymptomatic group is as contagious as those showing symptoms? Absolutely correct. Wow. And that's why it's so dangerous. Absolutely. So that being said, like take Fayette County. I think we're at, what are we at? 48 confirmed cases? We- 163
1: oh. statewide, 28 20. in Fayette County.
0: So let's just take our county, 28 confirmed cases. But your suspicion would be, it's much broader than that, and we don't know.
1: I think that's the tip of the iceberg, and the problem is, is that we don't actually know what the what the denominator is. We don't know the total number of individuals that are infected, because we're not performing surveillance studies on individuals that are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. We simply encourage them to stay home and and self quarantine for 14 days. So I, I think what will happen is, is that you know China has has published their experience with 110,000 cases um, over the first eight weeks of the epidemic um, and quarter to mortality, as I said, somewhere between 3.5% and 4%. But I think what you'll see is, is that in the next year, the World Health Organization um, will probably go into China and they'll sample blood from 2 million people uh, in the Hubei province. And they'll find that there weren't 100,000 people that were infected. They'll find that there are a million or two million people that were infected. And only the sickest actually came to medical attention. So as the number of individuals who are infected rises, even though they're asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, the expansion of that denominator will lower the overall mortality over time.
0: So I'm putting you on the spot here, and you may say, I have no idea. Um, in your, when this is all said and done on a global level, would is, is there a number you suspect this would be as far as mortality rate?
1: It's a complete guess, but my sense is that it will probably come in at about 1.2 to 1.5 percent. It'll be lower than what's been reported in China, but it will be significantly higher than seasonal
0: influenza. So we can definitively say this is much more dangerous than the flu and these extreme measures we're taking are appropriate. Yes. Okay. Because I think, I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of people worry that it's being politicized and hysteria and things like that. Um, but from a medical perspective, what's interesting is almost universally when I hear the professionals talk about this, they are saying it's this serious, but it's, uh, Political pundits and and whatnot who who are saying maybe this is overhyped and and whatnot. but we' we need to be taking this as seriously as we are, if not more seriously.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is profoundly serious. Um, and even though Kentucky would be considered to be a low prevalent state so far in the pandemic, all one has to do is look to Seattle or New York, uh, you know where their resources are seriously taxed in terms of the num- number of negative pressure rooms that are available, the number of mechanical ventilators for individuals with respiratory failure. And the fallout from all of this is is really much more profound than anything that we've experienced as a country. When you look at, you know, shutting down retail businesses, encouraging people to stay home, the job losses, basically the impact on single moms or hourly wage earners, um, there I, th- I think that there is a um, there's a sense of moral imperative to try and make this go away as fast as possible. But it's also my sense, basically, that that has to be approached in a very judicious fashion, because when you have a viral infection like this that has an incubation period between 2 and 14 days, you're always two weeks behind your last proven case. And so this is going to go on for a fair period of time. Um, in yesterday's New England journal there was a review of the initial 425 cases in Wuhan China where the median age was 60 about 60 percent of the patients who were infected were male somewhat encouragingly there was not a single patient under the age of 15 in that series but what came out of that study was is that during the initial six weeks of the epidemic in Wuhan the number of cases doubled every seven calendar days so while we're two weeks into this in the United States and in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, we're probably four weeks away from seeing uh, the peak. Um, and, and obviously, hopefully at that time, uh, we'll see some inflection in that epidemiology curve and a falling number of cases as opposed to an expanding number every day.
0: You, you brought up a point there that that I wanted to to speak a little bit more because it's something I've been wondering and I think other people are. Is there a difference in the makeup of our country than in Italy, a United Kingdom, you know, these these countries with a lot of people packed in? Um, now, we're, we are we are packed into our urban center, so what's going on in New York makes sense to me. But is it something where, like, in Kentucky, where we're taking extreme measures and our, our governor has done well in leading us in that... Um, we're taking extreme measures. And so should we be looking, I guess what I'm saying is, should we be looking at the, the, the United States as a whole or where we are? Um, like in my estimation, it's almost as if Washington might as well be another country as far as its connectivity to us, especially if we cut down on, on domestic travel. Am I thinking wrongly there? Is this just going to take over every state and it's going to be what it is?
1: it's very interesting when you when you follow the incidence map just over the last 10 days in this country you know you went from a focal outbreak uh, in Seattle from the index case described in the entire country and then the concentration of disease in a nursing home in Kirkland where 51 healthcare providers became infected and 22 elderly patients with comorbid conditions were described and then within literally a number of days you've got 30 plus states with reported cases and the last two states to trickle in with reported cases have been West Virginia and Idaho. Obviously those are geographically very disparate Um, and in general low population states with a uh, with a largely rural um, uh, population but no I I think that this is uh, expanded in the United States at a rate that that I personally find and professionally find to be uh, to be frightening. Your question, basically, about is this the same disease entity in in China and Iran and Italy as it is in the United States, and and I and I think our concerns really are driven by what's transpired in Italy, which now has right. more deaths than have actually occurred in China. And, uh, and it's devastated uh, Western Europe. Um, and, uh, and, and the dogma, basically, that's been articulated in the lay media is just that 80% of the patients are going to be fine. And if you're under the age of 60 and don't have medical comorbidities, this poses you little risk of causing difficulty. Um, I have concern, some concerns with that message. Where, where and, uh, and the reason for those concerns is, is that our experience here in Lexington is, is that patients with proven COVID-19 infection uh, have in general been younger and we've seen some critically ill patients including a medical student who was described uh, in yesterday's herald leader um, who's 26 years of age and about to graduate from U UofL um, and so so for for the younger population to think because they're under the age of 60 and don't have cardiac or pulmonary or renal disease or diabetes that they're somehow home free um, is perhaps not the message that we ought to be articulating, at least this early in the epidemic, because my sense is, again, as a clinician, that we're seeing younger patients than were described uh, in in the China experience, and we're seeing younger patients without comorbidities who have been profoundly ill.
0: So, you would say the, you would say, you know, we want to, we don't want to incite hysteria, but you do think it is true that the narrative of this is just impacting seniors and those with pre-existing conditions is not true.
1: No, I, I think that is true by and large. But what it what it ought not to do is allow us to become more lackadaisical yeah. about issues related to hand hygiene and uh, social distancing yeah. and uh, and gatherings. I mean, I think we all kind of looked aghast uh, last week at the spring break experience in Florida, right, right. you know, realizing basically that the combination of um, of alcohol, testosterone, and sandy beaches yeah. are not going to turn out well in the context of a pandemic. <laughs> that doesn't help the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, so. Okay. that's so, that's that's my signature line for for this podcast
0: okay so spring break doesn't help pandemics okay well i think that's a i think that's important um because i i would say you know um i i, I don't know the the line of reasoning i took on my podcast about this is that um you know millennials gen z millennials are getting lumped in always into the bad stuff but even the younger folks like spring breakers or gen z's that that they've got to take this seriously um as an act of loving the more vulnerable in our population but you're adding to that saying yeah absolutely but also don't assume that if you're young you're 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 free of this invincible. yeah absolutely. yeah okay that's good so um toward that end uh social distancing is the best way to go yes, that, that's it everything they're telling us to do is the best way as extreme as it may seem we need to do it yes. so what does that look like is six feet legitimately like like you're probably 10 feet from me right now i mean is, am i breathing in your germs right now i'm getting a little scared <laughs> I, I uh
1: i love you man and i hope not to put you at significant risk <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, and, and, and that data basically comes from how far droplet aerosols are projected in the context of normal speech and deep breathing. And so, in general, basically, the droplets that are coughed up from an infected individual uh, typically travel a period of a distance of about three to four feet, and uh, but unfortunately can persist in the environment for a period of three to four hours. And then when you talk about the survival of this particular virus on inanimate objects like wood or plastic or metal or cardboard, there's some data that's suggesting that those that the virus can persist on those inanimate surfaces for periods of hours to as long as eight days. So environmental surface cleaning, basically with dilute bleach or an alcohol chlorhexidine preparation becomes important both in the home and, and, and medical care
0: environments. Okay. So you just said that Four feet around you I'm about to just burn the church down <laughs> four feet around you right now I'm sitting in the room with a guy who's who's spending all his days around this virus and I'm ten feet from you in a room um, it, seriously like if if I'm in a grocery store and you you're you're carrying it this would be I'd be okay
1: I think that I think there, there's science to support the fact that six to ten feet provides you a modicum of safety
0: okay all right um So let me ask you just some, along the lines of social distancing, let me just ask you some questions that may be silly to you. But quite honestly, I think a lot of folks who are trying to take the quarantine thing seriously are asking. Like, for example, I order a package from Amazon. It shows up. Can that have it on it? Do I have to let it sit out there for a day? Do I, what what do I do with the package to Amazon? What do I, when I, um, we're trying to support local restaurants and keep them afloat during this time. You know, um carry out food. Can it be in my food? Can it be on the to-go box? Like, wh- help help us understand how to navigate yeah,
1: this. Yeah, and it's a difficult question, basically, because we're not far enough into this for this to be actually studied very well to determine relative risk. Um, but as I, as I just mentioned, basically, we know that, you know, cardboard and wood and metal surfaces can actually harbor the virus from anywhere from hours to as long as eight days. So there is some theoretical risk. Uh, in that, uh, and although you have a desire basically to, uh, to to minimize the impact of economic devastation on your local food establishments, the way to approach that I think is that if you take a package in off the porch basically in order to prevent it from uh, disappearing from porch pirates basically, you know you handle the package, you open the package, you wash your hands. And, um, and it's just these kind of common sense measures basically. And, and if you find your, if you find yourself washing your hands 40 to 50 times a day, then you're probably thinking about this correctly.
0: Okay. So, so you're okay. Just keep washing your hands. Just keep washing your hands. And so is, is it too extreme to do what my wife did from the grocery shopping the other day and take a Clorox wipe to every single thing that she brought into the house? Is that too extreme?
1: If you think I'm going to comment anything <laughs> about not, your wife, you don't understand. Not,
0: all, right, all right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Hey, better safe than sorry. Um, Here's here's the here's a question. In all seriousness, this quarantine—we know it's wrecking the economy. You're not an economist. I know that um, people um, in Congress, our president, their, um, our governor, um, people are having to weigh the balance of um, the 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 quarantine, its importance versus the economic importance and stuff like that. So I don't want you to comment on the financial implications i want you to just comment on from a medical perspective how long and if you can't answer you can't answer but how long should we expect if you were in charge how long should we expect to be living life the way we're living life right now
1: yeah i think nobody has a crystal ball basically in this context um and i uh I spoke with Congressman Barr uh, on the telephone yesterday, who's a bright, clear thinking guy, and asked him on behalf of the physicians in our group to, uh, as much as he could, attempt to persuade the Trump administration to go longer rather than shorter with the current measures. Um, And and again, because of the experience basically in China with a doubling of cases every week until you reach about week six of the epidemic before you kind of achieve an inflection point and the number of new cases begins to drop off. I I, I get the angst basically uh, about that. And old guys like me that have watched a third of their retirement fund dissipate over the last 10 days, you know, are kind of acutely aware of those numbers. With that said, and again, not being an economist and having a number of guys in the church who, who love Jesus and work in the financial services right. industry who are much more capable in commenting about this than I am. If you think about the fundamentals, basically of the American economy, you know, prior to two weeks ago, things were really sound. And so my my sense is, again, as a non-economist, uh, uh, but a clinician, is that uh, as the number of new cases basically begin to fall off and we get a handle, uh, you know, on the underlying prevalence of disease in our community, that the uh, that the economic fundamentals should
0: recover. Okay. So, longer rather than. I, I for minute, don't force a, it. Don't. This don't is a
1: situation where if you make a mistake, you err on the side of conservatism to try and protect people. Okay,
0: and 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 the reason why, going back to the the message we've been hearing over and over again of flattening the curve, the reason why is is you want to space out the cases rather than have that peak that they're seeing in New York and they get over you people like you get overwhelmed and you can't handle the volume of people exactly. that are.
1: You come to the point basically where you run out of bed capacity, you run out of personal protective equipment, you have physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists basically becoming infected and dropping out of the workforce so your capacity to care for the most critically ill is diminished uh, and the fallout from that can really be profound.
0: Okay. All right. All right, so let's be cautious. That's your word and and and, and follow follow the guidelines. Let me ask you one more question on this. Um, it it seems to me in my ignorant reading of what's going on is it true that um in south korea they took a different approach and they just went high high level of testing versus what what we're doing where we're just quarantining is there a, in other words if we were to get a ton of testing and we could just all kind of start drive through testing and figure out who has it then we could relax this a little bit more but we don't have the testing so that's the reason why is there, am i am i wrong
1: no, I think you're right, actually. Um, and, and in many respects, our, our Achilles heel over the last 18 or 20 days is the lack of availability of rapid testing. When the CDC uh, initially developed their first assay, there were some quality control issues, and so that really had to be revamped. And then the distribution of testing kits to individual state public health departments was, in my opinion, a little bit slow in terms of the rollout, and the capacity was seriously limited. So there have been situations here in Lexington where I felt patients were at high risk and ought to be tested that were initially declined by the Department of Public Health because those individuals were asymptomatic. And there have been situations where colleagues have submitted tests where I felt there was an alternative explanation for the patient's pulmonary pathology, their respiratory dysfunction, and they did not need to be tested. Um, And and in in both of those scenarios, basically, you run the risk of making clinical mistakes. And the state has been good in terms of the timing of the turnaround in that if they received a specimen by 11 o'clock in the morning, basically, they provided you with results within 24 hours. But the capacity for testing was rapidly overwhelmed at the state level. So this has led to the development of a number of assays now that have come out of commercial laboratories. And um, one of those laboratories promised a 72-hour turnaround time, but in fact, the results have been much longer than that. And the stress that that puts um, on hospitals and physicians is that if the issue of potential COVID-19 comes to your mind clinically, there's an imperative to actually rule it out, even if you think that that suspicion is low. So that patient is then hospitalized in a negative pressure room and utilizes PPE over 72 hours while you're waiting to try and exclude a diagnosis. So in many respects, the backlog, so to speak, in our hospitals has been our inability to rapidly exclude that as a
0: diagnosis are we getting more tests like we're hearing? I mean, is that? Yes. Okay, okay. Yes. So that, that's, that's getting better.
1: Yes, and there, there are a number of labs through an expedited process at the Food and Drug Administration that have now been certified to administer and test. Some of those tests can now be turned around within as little as 45 minutes uh, to somewhere in the neighborhood of four hours. But what that does is allow you to screen And in the non-critical ill patient who doesn't have respiratory failure, who's not in septic shock, can simply return home uh, in in quarantine, and it allows you to make a diagnosis and appropriately isolate and treat those individuals that are sicker.
0: Okay. All right. Let's talk really briefly. I know you got to get back to your crazy world. Um, Really briefly about treatment. Um, So asymptomatic is obviously, you have it, you don't know it. We all need to just maybe a healthy way forward is just assume that you're a carrier and conduct yourself as if, as if you could infect somebody. So the asymptomatics, one thing. What about somebody that's just, you know, man, I got a little fever. I got a um, you know, um, I got to cough. Um, you know, there has to be an in between, between the asymptomatic and I can't breathe. I got to go in. When should they reach out? When should they go in? When should, like, I, I have a couple friends that not locally, but who have gone through it. And the way they describe it is pretty nasty. I mean, they never got shortness of breath where they couldn't catch their breath, but chest pains, high fever, week and a half of just exhaustion. Should they be hospitalized? Should you just stay at home? When, when does somebody need to get your treatment?
1: Yeah, from from the standpoint of resource allocation, basically there's the asymptomatic carrier that you alluded to who's not ill at all and the person who's in septic shock and requires mechanical ventilation. And it's that uncomfortable tension basically with patients who are in between that aren't really sick enough to be hospitalized yet have relatively severe symptoms. And it's important to realize that those can last for a period of seven to 10 days. And so in general, if your fever exceeds 100.4 degrees, if you do become what we call dysmic, which is a technical term that simply means air hungry uh, or feeling actually short of breath, that's a clinical scenario where you ought to seek medical attention.
0: All right say that again so if your fever is above hundred point four hundred point four right and if you feel like you you can't catch your breath, is that what you're saying like exactly, you, you, exactly. like like you just got done working out kind of thing right. or
1: like walking yeah. up a flight of stairs and you're yeah or, or half a flight of stairs or or even more importantly, basically if you feel air hungry at rest basically like if you're
0: sitting there and you feel like you're trying to catch your breath like you would after going on a on a brisk walk in a non exertional capacity yeah.
1: basically if you feel air hungry, that's at normal
0: that's that's when you need to get in. Okay, so if I wake up tomorrow and I have a fever, which I probably will after being with you, if I wake up tomorrow and I have a fever and some, a headache and chills and tired, but I'm not I'm not air hungry to use your language, do I just call my general practitioner and just say, hey, here's what I've got going on? Do I? I think
1: that that's a wise way to start. Basically, for for patients who have moderate symptoms, it's also important to realize. That while you know COVID nineteen is clearly out there, you know we're also at the peak season for influenza A and B and a whole variety of other wow. respiratory viruses, and the and the problem is is our, our ability clinically to differentiate that without formal testing, and uh, and and that's uh, that's the stick in the mud.
0: Okay, all right. Um, now, is there any you know we're seeing a lot in the news and a lot of it's misinformation. I mean, there's there's stupid stuff like gargle vinegar, you know, or blow dryer. Okay. Let's eliminate all the nonsense. You know, there's a lot of antiviral stuff. There's like, you know, this, this malaria thing, the, the, the thing that Trump has said has, President Trump has said has been promising. How realistic and hopeful are there just as far as treatment options for this. I know vaccine, That's what's that, a year away probably?
1: Typically 12 to 18 months for yeah. development.
0: So take the vaccine off the table. We'll, we'll be celebrating, praise the Lord, when we got the vaccine. Are there treatment options out there that you think are promising? I think there are.
1: They're, uh, they're very limited. Um, there's been a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of chatter kind of in the lay literature and on TV about using a class of anti-malarial drugs drugs um, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which is marketed under the trade name of Plaquenil. Plaquenil gets relatively wide use in this country in a variety of autoimmune disorders, particularly systemic lupus uh, and rheumatoid arthritis. And the optimism with regards to Plaquenil comes out of the experience in Hong Kong and Singapore, where the drug was actually given prophylactically to highly exposed healthcare professionals. Pulmonary critical care physicians, infectious disease specialists, one to one ICU nurses and respiratory therapists man- managing the ventilator, and when given in a single weekly dose, seemed to dramatically reduce the risk of transmission of COVID nineteen from critically ill ICU patients to healthcare providers. And so the drug has been used um, on its own for purposes of prophylaxis.
0: Stop prophylactic. What's that mean? Prevention. Prevention. Oh, okay, so people were taking this, and they seen, it seemed to help with them not getting the virus, or at least not getting the symptoms.
1: Intensively exposed healthcare providers, yes, and so that's where that data comes from. And there's also been a few small studies uh, combining basically plaquenil with a conventional macrolide antibiotic called the azithromycin, which people are probably familiar with from the construct of a Z pack, oh, where that antibiotic is a derivative of erythromycin, and is given for sinusitis, bronchitis, middle ear infections, etc.
0: And you're saying that was it work kind of like a Tamiflu would work on flu kind of thing, like reduce the?
1: Yeah, the, the the paradox is is that we don't we don't know the exact mechanism of action, and clearly azithromycin is an antibacterial drug that does not have antiviral properties but it's also been used as an immune modulator in children with cystic fibrosis and adults with advanced chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And it appears to reduce the production of what we call pulmonary cytokines, which mediate inflammation in the lung.
0: Okay, so it has some side effects that might help. Okay, so outside of social distancing and taking these precautions, I mean, like, would you say if I'm eating a healthy diet, I mean, does it matter? Like, should I be, you know, are there things I can do to help not get this.
1: Let, let me let me let me backtrack basically um, just a little bit, and, and also say there is a drug na- the drug called remdesivir, which is currently produced by Gilead Pharmaceuticals in the San Francisco Bay Area, and this was developed about four years ago uh, and designed to treat Ebola. But when one looks in vitro, meaning in the laboratory, remdesivir has relatively profound activity against the coronaviruses that previously caused outbreaks of SARS and MERS. So this appears to be a promising agent. Unfortunately, it has to be given intravenously, and and we were able to obtain the drug for a couple of patients here in Lexington who were critically ill and mechanically ventilated. The problem with the compassionate plea approach to obtaining the drug is that you already have to be on the respirator in order to qualify to receive the drug and with with 60,000 cases basically in the United States over the last 12 days Gilead pharmaceuticals which produces this drug came out yesterday morning and said that their their ability basically to manufacture and distribute has been overcome uh, has been overcome already uh, and consequently they've shut down that compassionate plea trial so there are some promising things out there Uh, when the president came out and seemed uh, in some people's perspective, to be overly optimistic about the combination of Plaquenil and Azithromycin. He kind of got cut off uh, at the knees by, by Tony Fauci, um, and I'm not sure that that was appropriate because we're, we're in a scenario right now where Dr. Fauci would want those drug combinations to be studied in what we call a randomized, double-blinded uh, clinical trial where there's a one-to-one comparison between patients who get the study drug and who get matched placebo, and neither the patient nor the physician investigators know whether that patient actually got true drug or placebo, and then those patients are followed over a period of time to see that if there's a difference, basically, in complications in mortality. Uh, we don't have time to do that. You know, you've got thousands of Americans that are dying. and so. If, in fact, there are therapies out there that may, in fact, have benefit and are unlikely to hurt and may actually help, I think most clinicians feel the moral imperative to treat those patients.
0: So, so we don't have time to put, put all this through the normal rigors. If there's a hope, let's give it a try, especially if there's no bad side effects. That's true. Sure. Okay. All right. So what I was asking there is, I'm assuming that a healthy immune system is really important alongside social distancing. So I'm just talking about like diet, exercise and all these things. This helps. I mean, I know that the healthy are still vulnerable to it, but, but we need to be taking care of ourselves. And it, does that matter? Or am I?
1: No, no, it does matter. I mean, uh, this is a situation where the host actually becomes critically important. And the reason more severe and potentially fatal disease occur in individuals over the age of 60 with comorbidities is is that they don't have the constitution, they don't have the immune system that allows to fight, allows them to fight this once it occurs. And patients that are on cytotoxic chemotherapy or corticosteroids or biologics for things like inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, those individuals are going to be at highest risk for more severe disease.
0: All right, so distance and... Stay healthy. All right. Uh, I could talk all day cuz this stuff is interesting to me, but I you got to get back to it. So let me let me just end with this. Um take off your uh MD hat and put on your um RE hat, ruling elder hat. You're you're an elder at our church, you're a man who loves the Lord um as a, as an elder of the church. I don't know what would be your what would be your word. A lot of fear, a lot of panic, a lot of uncertainty. What what would you say to it? All?
1: Yeah, you know, I think in our, our, our reformed covenantal tradition, basically, uh, we die on the hill of the sovereignty of God. And we believe that everything that happens in a, in the life of a believer who, by grace and through, and through faith and on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, uh, has come to have that personal relationship with God, we believe that everything that happens in our life basically is either allowed by Him or ordained by Him. Um, and, and I think that's where we uh, that's where uh, we put our faith basically uh, in lieu of our our fear. And then I've been trying to process this kind of through the lens uh, over the last number of weeks of our um, Good at the Bluegrass Conference. And I keep being drawn back to Dr. Doriani's message basically on Sunday morning from Romans chapter eight, where, uh, where Paul is speaking basically to the church in Rome and he poses to them a rhetorical question. Um, and and his question is, what can separate us from the love of God? And uh, and he proceeds to say that neither danger nor famine nor peril nor nakedness nor mm-hmm. sword. And his response to his own rhetorical question is a resounding no. In all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquerors through Christ who loves us. But he ups the ante basically, and then he goes on to say that. I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things future nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that's where we uh, we, draw, um, uh, we, we, we draw our confidence, um, not from the duration of our faith, not from the intensity of our faith, but from the object of our, of our faith. Uh, and that's the, that's the life and work of Christ. And so I find myself every day in these really anxious times. You know, preaching the gospel to myself on a daily basis. You know, that a, a loving and merciful, but a holy and just God enters a fallen world in the person of his Son. Uh, Virgin-born, sinless life, substitutionary, atoning death, resurrection from the dead is the ultimate manifestation of his power over sin and death, and now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who know and love it. And that's the gospel. Amen. That's what we stand on. Amen.
0: You want to preach on Sunday too? You go. Are you? Are you? Are you, <laughs> are you tired? I, I can. I can give you the pulpit. Are, are I can't you, take your job, but you can have mine. Are you tired? <laughs> uh, I'm not as tired as you. Hey, Amen. Not even not even COVID nineteen can separate us from the love of love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother, thank you. This is going to be a blessing to a lot of people, and um, and we'll be praying for you. Is, how can we pray for you? Just perseverance and.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a stamina issue at this point in time. Basically, taking care of sick patients. Um, is the easiest part of it, you know, kind of negotiating the new scenarios that pop up every day and the logistics of kind of, you know, overseeing a hospital system with six campuses. Uh, And so it, it, yeah, it really is a stamina and a fatigue issue. Uh, But yeah, I I covet those prayers. All
0: right. Well, everybody listen to this, uh, stop and pray for Charlie and all of our medical providers. Thanks a lot, buddy.